0: Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HCI podcast episode, I talk with Douglas E. Knoll about emotional intelligence versus emotional competence and the attributes of an emotionally competent person and leader. Doug Noel, welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast.
1: Well, John, thanks for having me. I I love your work. You do some really cool stuff.
0: Oh, I appreciate that. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to share your expertise and experience with me and my listeners. Today, we're going to be focusing on emotional intelligence versus emotional competence, and we're going to explore the attributes of an emotionally competent person and an emotionally competent leader. As we get started, I wanted to share Doug's bio with everybody. Doug E. Knoll, JD and MA, left a successful career as a trial lawyer to become a peacemaker. His calling is to serve humanity, and he executes his calling at many levels. He is an award-winning author, teacher, trainer, and highly experienced mediator. Doug's work carries him from international work to helping people resolve deep interpersonal and ideological conflicts to training life inmates to be peacemakers and mediators in maximum security prisons. Uh, What an interesting and unique background that you have. Uh, And perhaps as we get started, you could share a little bit more about how you ended up where you're at and and anything else about your background that you'd like listeners to know.
1: So as you described it, John, I, I was a lawyer for a trial lawyer for 22 years, quite successful. What happened to me was that I took up the martial arts in the mid 1980s and ultimately started studying Tai Chi. And uh, Tai Chi turns out to be a, an extremely vicious martial art, contrary to what most people think. And it's also the oldest of all martial arts. And it has two paradoxes. The first paradox is the softer you are, the stronger you are. And the second is the more vulnerable you are, the more powerful you are. Well, in the beginning, being a hardcore trial lawyer and a secondary, second degree black belt in a Northern Chinese Kung Fu style, I didn't get this, but I kept, kept studying and practicing. And one day I was in a courtroom trying a case and, and the thought came to me, what the heck am I doing in here? So after that trial, I had a vacation planned uh, and a whitewater trip. And during that trip, I spent the week thinking about how many people I'd really served as a trial lawyer. And at the end, I decided that I had only served maybe five people out of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of cases. And now that's not what I want to do. So I said, I think my trial work is over with, but I didn't know what I was going to do. So I came back and as I was driving into my office out of the mountains here in central California, I heard a public service announcement on our local public radio station for a master's degree in peacemaking and conflict studies. And ultimately I enrolled, became a full-time graduate student in mid-career in my late forties, And at the same time, I was teaching law, so I was a three-quarters-time law professor and also, of course, a full-time trial lawyer. I had many discussions with my partners in my law firm about the idea of starting a problem-solving and peacemaking practice, and some loved the idea and some hated the idea. We couldn't reach agreement, so in October of 2000, I walked out. I gave one week's notice and left $10 million on the table and walked away and became a peacemaker and a mediator. And that's how my, my real career started. It took me 22 years to get to that point. And since that time, I just don't make as nearly as much money. But boy, the number of people that I help, I help more people in a week or a month than I helped in 22 years as a trial lawyer. And it's extremely satisfying work. So that's yeah. basically the trajectory.
0: Yeah, well, thank you for sharing that. Uh, that is a really compelling story. And... The, the fulfillment, the meaning, the purpose that you derive from the work that you do, I imagine, is uh, tremendous, and the impact that you have on the lives of those you serve and the world, the communities in which you serve, are, is tremendous, so that's, that's wonderful. Um, that context, I think, helps frame out what we'll be discussing today, and again, we'll be talking about the difference between emotional intelligence and emotional competence, Um, And and really explore what some of those characteristics of emotionally competent people uh, are. Uh, But first I wanted to start with something I know you talk about. Uh, You say that we are 98% emotional beings and only 2% rational. Uh, where, Where does that come from? Explain that a little bit for us and then we can dig in a little deeper.
1: That comes from neuroscientist and medical doctor Antonio Damasio. Now he used to be at the University of Iowa. Now he's at USC, University of Southern California, and he's written extensively about how emotions, where emotions come from, and what they are. And uh, he's written some best-selling books and done a lot of research. Uh, and he's the one that kind of a, where I first got the idea that this whole myth, or, this whole idea of rationality, is a big myth in fact it's a lie Uh, we are we can't even be rational unless we're emotional first and the problem is we live in a society going back for at least four thousand years where we have privileged rationality over emotions and we've viewed emotions as being weak or soft or make you vulnerable or even in some with some philosophers emotions are evil um Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo, said that the only way to get to heaven is through reason. And he said women can't reason. Uh, And and he was the guy, he was a neoplatonist, he wasn't a Christian, he was a neoplatonist in the Catholic Church and was charged with building the Catholic theology, which he did. But I would submit that all the problems that the Catholic Church has faced, especially around oppression and abuse of women and, and sexual abuse of children, stems from his theology and his beliefs. And uh, we can see example after example of where the fact that we have not embraced the fact that we are emotional and we've given privilege to rationality and we're not rational beings has caused nothing but grief and abuse for thousands and thousands of years. And it's just really because people didn't know any better. It's only in the last 20 or 30 years that with the advent of neuroimaging technology, we've been able to see how the brain actually operates and it, it operates in a way completely different than how we think it operates.
0: Yeah, that's so interesting. And, you know, we, we hear all the time about making data-driven and evidence-driven decisions. Uh, and and that's, that's really privileged within organizations. And I, and I believe, it, you know, largely in the idea that we want to try to make the best decision possible right. based on the information that's available to us but we're fooling ourselves if we pretend like we we are fully rational beings. Uh, if we feel like we're even emotionally rational beings, because we all see the world through various lenses that are shaped by our emotions, our background, our experiences, all of our implicit biases, our prejudices, and you know all those things create the lenses through which we interpret whatever data or evidence we may have in front of us. So when we say we're rational, okay, but it's it's buried underneath all these layers right and so
1: yeah it's even worse than that i teach a graduate course at pepperdine called decision making under stress and uncertainty and the first thing i ask my students is what's what is rationality and you know something there is no definition of rationality it's a word that people throw around and it's another word that drives me crazy is social justice that's another word that you want to get me going just start talking about that it's a word that has no meaning And and there is no, you cannot find a definition of what, when we say rationality, what do we mean by that? What's the definition of rationality? And there is no definition. If you, uh, and I, you look at all the leading textbooks on decision making and and look in the field of, there's a whole field of uh, decision making and judgment out there comprised of all kinds of different disciplines, but nobody can really define what rationality is. It's a myth. It's a myth.
0: Well, and it's interesting because you think about the field of economics, for example, and it's, it's it's built upon the assumption of rationality, right? Rational right. actors making decisions. Uh, and so they build models right. around this idea of rational actors. And so you know, I get it, uh, we, we need to do the best we can with what we have and and there's always flaws in any model and then, you know, any any framework, you know, has its limitations. And so we, if, as long as we can recognize all those things, I suppose there's still value in, in having these models, Absolutely. but we, we just need to be clear-eyed about what that actually means. That's and
1: right. so, I mean, go if, you go, if you go back to economics, uh, uh, von Neumann and Morgenstern in 1948, did uh, explicated the whole theory of, of expected utility theory in economics. They, and they weren't trying to define, def- this is where everybody makes a mistake. They weren't trying to define how humans actually behave. What they were trying to do is make an assumption. If people were going to make decisions to maximize their utility under e- classical economic theory, what would what would the conditions have to be? And so that's what they defined. But then everybody misconstrued that and said, well, they're really just defining how people act. And they knew at the time, that's not how people act. In fact, the LA, the LA paradox was developed almost immediately. And, and, then, and then Kahneman and Tversky took that work. And of course, Kahneman got the Nobel, first social psychologist to ever got the Nobel prize in economics for prospect theory. And today there's a whole, there are two fields that have developed. One neuroeconomics led by a colleague of mine at Claremont graduate school. And another one, uh, of course, behavioral economics. And people are now realizing that we don't make rational decisions. And the whole idea of prospect theory is, for example, a good example of that, where depending on how you frame the problem, you're gonna make a different decision.
0: Yeah, yeah. So we start to chip away at this idea of kind of the golden idol of rationality. (laughs) (laughs) uh, (laughs) So we, we start to chip away at that. We start to realize we really are emotional beings. Uh, once we recognize that, then we can start to to address those emotional components. And so, for example, emotional intelligence—that's all the rage. It's been, you know, such a popular term uh, that's that's talked about. You know, the last decade at least. Um, and so, describe for us though what you mean. So you like to to put emotional intelligence against this idea of emotional competence. Correct. So tell, tell us about what you mean by those two constructs, why they're different to you and why emotional competence you feel is, is uh, the preferred approach.
1: Yes. So emotional intelligence is, is a form of social intelligence. And the term was actually coined back in the 1990s uh, by uh, the research psychologists who were studying this sort of thing, trying to understand the different kinds of social intelligences. And then New York times, science writer, Daniel Goleman, who was a PhD himself, smart guy, picked up on their studies, basically stole it, and wrote his first best-selling book about why emotional intelligence is more important than IQ. And so we have, and so there's this huge divergence in that we have the commercial side, where if you go out on on the internet and search for emotional intelligence, you'll have everybody and their uncle saying, I can teach you how to be emotionally intelligent. And you've got the academic side that are saying, "Uh uh-uh, no. Emotional intelligence is a test, just like IQ or Watson-Glazer critical thinking test, is a test of certain emotional competencies. And so that's why I say, that's why I say you will never learn emotional intelligence because it's like trying to learn a test. You can't do that. And anybody who tells you that they're going to teach you emotional intelligence or give you emotional intelligence training are one, not emotionally intelligent themselves, and two, are undereducated. They have not studied the field. They don't understand what emotional intelligence really is. And in fact, I've looked at a lot of these trainings. There are are over 240 of them listed on the internet in the first 10 pages of Google or something like that. Um, They don't even define what emotions are. How can you teach emotional intelligence if you don't even know what an emotion is? And, And it's crazy. So that's why I come around to the idea of emotional competency.
0: I'm excited to announce the publication of my new book from HCI Press, Bluer Than Indigo Leadership The Journey of Becoming a Truly Remarkable Leader. Early in my adult life, I learned about an Asian proverb
1: These are skills that are teachable and learnable, and and that basically fall into three categories, emotional self-awareness, emotional self-regulation, and empathy. Learning, and empathy is nothing more than learning how to recognize the emotions in another person and reflect back those emotions with a simple use statement, a process known as affect labeling. And when you start learning emotional competency all of a sudden your life changes because you see you see human behavior through the light of emotion not through the light of uh, uh, through the lens of emotions not through the lens of rationality and all of a sudden people make perfect sense they're no longer acting crazy they're just acting emotional. and the other thing that you learn is that what looked like chaos before is now completely predictable uh, because uh, humans have a very small repertoire, a very narrow repertoire of behaviors around emotions. It seems like people are crazy, but when, once you start setting this stuff and mastering it, all of a sudden you realize, hey, you know, I've seen this a million times before, not a big deal. Now, why is this important? It's important to me in my primary work as a peacemaker and mediator, because obviously I am called in and get paid big bucks for walking into intense conflicts. And I need tools that work every time without fail, that allow me to diagnose and intervene when in deep and tractable emotional conflicts. But it's much broader than that. Uh, you know, if you're a leader, today there's we're talking about the great resignation, right? Everybody's leaving their jobs. Well, they're tired of illegitimate hierarchies and they're tired of poor management. And so if you're going to be an effective leader today, you have to recognize that your people that are following you are emotional, not rational. And if you don't master emotional competency, self-awareness, self-regulation, and empathy, you're going to fail because yeah. you're expecting your people to be something they aren't.
0: Yeah, yeah. The modern leader, I, I mean, I, I would say even the most successful leaders in in prior generations, you know, when we had more commonly command control models, hierarchies, mm-hmm. authoritarian styles, um, you know, that kind of more traditional um, leadership approach, I'm s- not sure was even... The most effective, gener- you know, in previous generations, but th- it was certainly more common. Uh, and an organization—that's how most organizations function. The organization of today, in a hyper-competitive global marketplace with uh, distributed workforces, with disruptive innovations, with all you know, all the complexities and messiness of the world of work, uh, the leaders of today need to be able to master exactly what you're describing. Um, and, and if they can't, they're, gonna, they're not gonna attract and retain their, their, the, the best people. They're going to lose their best people because like you said, people are fed up with uh, incompetent leaders with, uh, w- with structures and systems that are in- inequitable and that ultimately uh, disadvantage certain populations. They have greater levels of expectation for leaders than I think previous generations. And it, it's, it's one of the reasons why I think young millennials and Gen Z uh, employees get a bit of a bad rap. Uh, sometimes they're labeled as entitled because they expect you know, to go into an organization, get coached and mentored, have opportunities to grow and to, to advance. And you know, sometimes are, are younger people entitled? Sure. But I, a lot of what I hear about the complaints in how things get labeled entitlement, I think it's really just... Di- sh- shifting expectations that that young younger workers uh have grown up in a world where they have a higher level of expectation for their leaders and when they don't get it they they're and they have options they know that they can go other places because their their skills are in demand that they're gonna go somewhere else they, they're not gonna put up with crappy leaders jerk bosses uh, inequitable systems and unhealthy organizations and cultures they're just not and and so so much of that comes back to this idea of uh, emotional competence yeah, you, you know you, you've distinguished between emotional intelligence and emotional competence. People talk about IQ and EQ you know regardless of the labels, I think exactly, uh, those attributes and those characteristics that you were describing are spot on. And ultimately, we need to be able to develop those characteristics and attributes if we hope to be successful in the future of work.
1: Now, that, that, you're absolutely correct. And I, I agree with all of that. And here's the really interesting question. If this is so obvious, it's like tracking a bleeding elephant through the snow. It's that obvious. Why is it that business leaders hate emotions. When I talk to, when I talk, I know why, but when I talk, give talks or I do stuff on LinkedIn, everybody kind of pats me on the head and says, good dog, good dog, Doug, good dog, Doug. (laughs) And, and yeah, emotional intelligence is really important, but nobody invests in it. They don't invest in themselves. And so the, the really pressing question is if we all know intellectually, that developing emotional competency is gonna be, be the only way to be an effective leader in the 21st century. Why aren't leaders and organizations embracing this? And it, and it goes back to the fact that as children, well, first of all, percent 96%, 96% of families are emotionally dysfunctional. It's been that way forever, hasn't changed because of all the things we talked about, and we, no one's ever taught us how to be emotionally competent, So we have children growing up in emotionally abusive relationships, even in the most loving and affluent families. There is, there is not a child out there that has not been emotionally abused by their parents. And I'll just give you a really quick example. Remember when you were, John, remember when you were two years old, you were running around outside, you fell down and you skinned your knee and started to cry? What were you told? Yeah, stop whining. (laughs) Don't (laughs) cry. Be a big boy. Big boys. Don't cry. Be a man. Don't be a sissy. Don't be a girly girl. And for the girls, it was don't cry. Stop crying. It doesn't hurt. Put your big girl panties on. We were all emotionally invalidated from two years all the way through life. We were told that emotions are bad and that we're bad and weak for being emotional. And if we're not tough, we'll never survive in the world. That's all BS. And so leaders were programmed this way and now when we tell them in their 30s and 40s that you have to become emotionally competent to succeed the last thing they want to do is confront the fact that they're inside themselves they are emotionally unsafe and emotionally incompetent and so they shy away from the idea so when for example you talk about emotional incompetence and the first thing that people will say well is that just a soft skill not realizing that that soft skill was was a a term invented by the US Army to describe the emotional skills that commanders had to have in the battle space to win battles. It wasn't good enough to just have a rifleman out there. You had to have somebody commanding. And they had to know how to manage the emotions of the people under them. But business people don't get that. And that's the biggest challenge I see today. It's It's not that the skills are hard to learn, they aren't. They're easy to learn. It's that people are afraid of them. And they're, they're afraid of emotions because of, of childhood programming and abuse they went through when they were invalidated for years and years and years and years. And now the idea of going back and looking at emotions is just too painful. And that's our problem.
0: Yeah. And, 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 and we're,
1: we're, just, that.
0: we're just not used to it, right? Um, because, because we've lived a life uh, with these kind of unhealthy relationships. Right. And most bosses, most leaders end up in positions of formal structural leadership. Not necessarily due to any leadership competencies they have, but because they had some level of expertise in their, their field and their discipline and they over time they get promoted. And then they find themselves leading people and having to shift away from having disciplinary expertise uh, and that being their job right. to, now, to now they have to be able to like lead teams and deal with interpersonal dynamics and they have uh-huh. to be able yeah, to show empathy. It. And, and they don't know how to do it yes
1: yeah. they don't know how to do it so it's it's that's a great example to be very specific imagine that you're you're a software software engineer you know how to write code and you're a really good code writer and then you become a lead on the team where you're kind of helping and mentoring the younger people and then all of a sudden because you're so good now you become the team leader it's no longer your job to write code it's your job to lead the team to provide direction focus and safety and you're never taught what those skills are. You spent years learning how to code and how to think, do systems analysis, but you were not taught, you weren't given one minute of training about what leadership is and what the, what, why and how your people really operate as emotional beings. And so yeah, yeah. you revert back to what you learned in childhood, which was command and control, authoritarian. Dad told me what to do, you know. I'm,
0: and, I'm, and what you've seen other incompetent leaders seen, do. Exactly,
1: <laughs> exactly, modeling. Yep. And, that, and and when you look at all of this and then think about the Great Resignation, this is the result of 40 or 50 or 60 years of this kind of stuff, this, this kind of ig- yep. ignorance around emotions.
0: Yeah. Well, Doug... I'm just noting the time. Uh, I know you're going to have to get on with your busy day. This has been such a fascinating conversation. But before we close, I wanted to make sure I gave you a chance to share with listeners how they can get connected with you, find out more about your work, and then give us a final word on the topic for today.
1: Absolutely. So my general website is d o u g n o l l D-O-U-G-N-O-L-L.com. But I have a page for anybody who's listening, which is DougNoel.co, not com, slash hci the name of this podcast so if you go to dugnol.co slash hci i've got four things there i've got a free ebook course, you got to give me your email email address for that um i you can get my book my fourth book Deescalate: how to calm an angry person in 90 seconds or less and then i have two online courses that you can get at discounts on that page so it's doug dugnol.co slash hci um i would just really encourage, uh, you know, I used to be like everybody else. You know, as a trial lawyer, I eschewed emotions. I thought it, they were weak. I thought they were stupid. You know, emotional stuff was BS. And you know, I was just a hardcore male, arrogant asshole, <laughs> to put it bluntly. I learned the hard way that emotions are the most important thing you can master in your life. And when you master those emotions, not only do you become more effective in your business or your career or your profession, far more effective than you can possibly imagine, but it completely transforms your personal life as well, where you can actually listen to your children and validate them. You can listen to your spouse or your partner and have a deep, intimate relationship. So the payoff for learning these skills is huge. And the and the time that it takes to master them, if you can get the courage to do it, because it takes some courage to do this, the, make no mistake, but if you have the courage to dive into this and learn these skills. And they're not difficult to learn or master. You just have to have the courage to do it. The payoff is unbelievable. And so I would encourage anybody who's listening to really look at this stuff. I got a lot of resources on my website. There are other places you can go as well to, to start studying emotions and learn that you are an emotional being and then learn how to unlock that hidden genius inside yourself. And it will completely change your life.
0: Yeah. I love it. Thank you so much, Doug. It has been a real pleasure. I encourage listeners to reach out, get connected, find out more about what Doug can do for you. And as always, I hope everyone can stay healthy and safe that you can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day. And I hope you all have a great week.